that he was this kind of folk hero and he was uh, bucking the system and daring and uh, he, he smoked and drank. As you know, I, I never saw my uncle after one year following the hijacking. Look, the, you know, we're all sort of familiar with the Cooper hijacking, I think, you know, uh, I'm sure that the listeners here are, you know, at least not, it's not varsity players, but JV players in the Cooper case, and they know sort of what happened about how the, the, the hijacker uh, demanded his ransom and his parachute and parachuted out over the, the not-so-blue yonder of the stormy Pacific Northwest. It is November 24. 1971, and a man named Dan is about to jump out of the thing with all of that stuff. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. November 2011 saw the 40th anniversary of the only unsolved skyjacking in the United States, the theft of $200,000 by a man called D.B. Cooper. Most of our longer-time listeners are familiar with the case, but if you're not, there are links on our episode page to previous podcasts that examine the caper. Here at Kick-Ass Oregon History, we are captivated by the story of D.B. Cooper. To recognize the 40th anniversary, we hosted a D.B. Cooper 40th anniversary espectacular at Mississippi Studios. Our own resident historian, Doug Kent Crispin, placed the crime in its proper Oregon context. Oh, and he rapped about the crime as well. He was joined on the stage by historians Matt Love and Katie Barber, but not for the rapping part. Without exaggeration, we can say it was a kick-ass event and helped present the legacy of this historic crime to an excited Oregon audience. A few days later at the Portland Hilton, author Jeffrey Gray hosted the first annual D.B. Cooper Symposium, where, once again, Mr. Kate Crispin offered presentations on the case, two of them, neither of which included rapping. Afterwards, a caravan of Cooper fans voyaged to the world-famous Ariel Tavern for the yearly celebration of the Cooper crime. All told, it was a whirlwind of Cooper goodness, or badness depending on how you view the protagonist, 
and the exciting new angles of the case were discussed and exhibited on a truly national scale. Which naturally brings us to ask, on the 41st anniversary, how much in the case has changed one year later? We have assembled a panel of experts immersed in the caper and had an opportunity to interrogate them with this very question. Our first culprit, suspect, expert is none other than Jeffrey Gray, author of the New York Times best-selling novel Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. We'll begin with what has happened over the last year. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Gray. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, well, let's let's just get right into it. Uh, what's happened in the case since the 40th anniversary celebration last year? Well, you know, really what's happened in the case is just stone-cold radio silence. Um, you know, I think that over the years the FBI has uh, been, uh, depending on who's in charge of the case, more or less willing to discuss what's actually happening. And right now we're in this sort of period of nothing, no information is leaking out of the Bureau headquarters in Seattle. Um, I, I, from what I understand, the, um, the agents in charge have just sort of decided not really to talk about this case anymore, uh, at least for the time being. And, and obviously the, the reason why must have been um, something to do with the anniversary last year and all the, um, the sort of leaks uh, and speculation around a potential new suspect in the case and, what, and how serious the FBI was taking it. So basically what we have is a situation where the FBI is very, was very excited about a suspect for the first time, probably the biggest suspect in, in decades. Um, but, you know, once again, the Cooper curse seems to have struck, and we now know almost nothing about the suspect or as little as we did from the beginning. Now, it's important to note, though, that the FBI, you know, in my opinion, is only one part of the investigation. And there are tons of people who are looking for Cooper out there who aren't the FBI. And, um, you know, everyone's conducting their own investigation. So it's going to be interesting to see how the energy from last year carries on into the 41st anniversary. Mr. Gray discussed with us the importance of the so-called Reno evidence. Now, in Reno, Nevada, when the agents searched the plane, they found a bunch of clues, and really these clues are the only physical evidence that we have from this case, and they're crucial to understand. When I was reporting uh, on a lot of the files for my book, you know, I just really tried to pretend almost, you know, this was like a fantasy in a way. Okay, I'm this FBI agent. It's Reno, Nevada. It's November 24th, 1971. I'm walking on this plane. And, you know, here's what I see. And here's the, the, the remnants of this incredible, incredible crime. And here's what they saw. And this is sort of according to the files. You know, the, the FBI saw the plane was a complete mess. All the food that the hijacker had recommended or had asked for to keep the crew happy had been splattered about. The aft door had been opened. Seatbelts had been ripped off the seats. It was complete chaos.
Mr. Gray went on to detail a possible new angle of investigation in the case that has emerged this past year. We asked him about the matchbook. The matchbook itself was reported by the stewardess on the flight, Tina Mucklow. And what she said about this matchbook was that it was blue in color and had the word Sky Chef on it. And I thought, you know, Sky Chef, this is pretty interesting. What, what does that mean? What, what is Sky Chef? And, and what we learned is that Sky Chef was the name of um, restaurants that were in airports at the time. So what does it mean that Cooper had in his pocket a matchbook from Sky Chef? Does it mean that he was, you know, enjoying a meal at the Portland airport before the hijacking? It could be. Or does it mean that he was potentially at another airport before and had flown to Portland with some really some, from someplace else in the country, which has been speculated? Could be. One of the interesting things is that um, one Cooper sleuth out there sent me a um, an advertisement for a Sky Chef restaurant, and on it. It actually had the hours of operation. What it suggested was that the, the, the restaurant in Portland was closed on the day of the hijacking, which I thought was really interesting because that would suggest that Cooper had come from somewhere else, or maybe he worked in the airport and had the you know had the matches on him. You know, it's it's really tough to say, and you know, it's one of the the other frustrating things with this case is that we you know sort of come so close to actually getting you know, a bite, uh, just a nibble onto what actually happened and that the, the impossible um, ability to predict actually what happened sinks in and, and we're stuck at the same position where we actually know so much and know so little. Certainly one of the more pleasant happenings over the last year associated with the D.B. Cooper case is the success of Mr. Gray's book, Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. So how is the book going? Uh, Skyjack was recently released in paperback. Yeah, um, you know, the the paperback version um, of the book came out last month in, um, in September. And uh, it's going well. You know, uh, bookstores had it up in front, which is good for, for authors and good for books. And the film rights to your book were recently purchased by CBS Films. Any word on that project? Well, um, it's true, you know, over the summer, uh, CBS Films uh, optioned the, the rights to, to produce um, uh, a feature film sort of based on, um, on the book and the, the story of the case, but also the story of the, the Cooper uh, suspects and their hunters. And, um, you know, like with all projects in Hollywood, you know, we'll just have to wait and see on that one. You know, I think that you know, it's certainly exciting that people are, 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 are interested in uh, the screenwriter that they have is a, a really great guy and super, super talented. But, you know, it's really, you know, I'm, I'm having gone through the Cooper case and many other um, investigations, you know, I, I uh, just have to wait and see what happens. Uh, there's a lot of projects in Hollywood, and um, hopefully this one will make it through. We asked Mr. Gray if the D.B. Cooper case is still significant 41 years later. You know, I think that um, not only is the case still significant, but I think that the case is more significant than it's been since Cooper made his jump. 
you know, last year for the 40th anniversary, we had more attention, uh, more national exposure, more interest, more um, more collaboration between, you know, this uh, sort of community of, of amateur sleuths than the case has ever seen. You know, while there's quibblings in the community, there's more activity, there's more action, more interest, there's more eyes out there looking at it. So, I, and, and furthermore, not only are, are people now more familiar with the case, but we're in a better position to understand the facts. You know, uh, one of the great things that I was able to do for um, for my book was to be able to use the actual FBI files that had never been published before to to compose a real accounting of what happened, what was actually said, and what was actually found. So now that we know the real data, the real facts, we now know what kind of clues we can work with. So we're in this like we're, this incredible position where we now know, and people people want to know. But why does the D.B. Cooper mystery seem to captivate people still? In our world, where we know so much about everything, okay, where where every every bit of an, every answer is or in these oracle style phones that we have in our hands, and all we need to do is just punch a few buttons and and find. Um, the answers to our curiosity on anything. There's still this guy out there who we still don't know who he is and how he did it and who he was, or even if he was a he. And I think that this 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 wonderment, this idea that this guy could actually do something so sort of so profound and maybe even so so, so tragic and inspire the you know the imaginations of people four years later is really sort of a special moment in American history. And I'm just so glad that you guys are putting together this podcast series. You've done all the other wonderful programming um, to really put, you know, the Cooper hijacking and the Cooper jump, like, in, in its proper cultural context. And, um, you know, there's nothing more that we, we can hope for except to, to continue kicking ass on the Kick-Ass History series. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Mr. Gray. Thanks for the kind words. I do appreciate it. Doug, we'll be in touch. Sounds good. As always. All right. Ciao. We're pretty fucking kick-ass, aren't we? Next we had a chance to question Marla Cooper about the caper. As you may recall, Ms. Cooper emerged on the scene a little over a year ago when she told the story of her uncle, one L.D. Cooper, from our own sister's Oregon. Marla recalls Thanksgiving of 1971, when L.D. and her other uncles arrived for the holiday in a frenzied state. L.D. Cooper was injured and bloody, and he and the other Cooper brothers were excitedly talking about having lost the money. Marla's story and the subsequent FBI investigation into L.D. Cooper has been one of the most exciting developments in the case, literally, in decades. So, about a year ago, you went to Seattle, 
and you spoke with some representatives of the Federal Bureau of Investigation about your uncle, L.D. Cooper. Can you recount to us the gist of that meeting for our listeners? Uh, yes, I met with Curtis Ng face to face for the first time. We've had we've had multiple phone conversations and emails back and forth over the previous year, fifteen months, something like that. And um, it was the first time though that Curtis and I actually got to meet face to face, shake hands, and um, I wasn't expecting what he said to me. I, I really just thought it was a was going to be a hi, nice to meet you. Um, Curtis has always been pretty hush-hush about what goes on involving the investigation that I that I wasn't to know about. You know, he was he's never been forthcoming with information. When I found out that they actually had fingerprints of of my uncle that they'd been evaluating since August, I found out from the person who actually supplied those fingerprints. It was a complete shock to me that somebody had come forward. Um, with fingerprint evidence back in August, and I, I didn't learn that until October. And uh, so, you know, that's just an example of Curtis not just bearing his, his whole file to me. Um, I had information on a need-to-know basis, as they say. So when when we met in his office, I, I really just thought it was going to be a, a pleasantry of um, nice to meet you and, and all of that. And, and when he told me that they intended to um, close the case, regardless of the findings of these fingerprints, I was shocked. And he said, you know, that was something that was broadcast all over the place. And, you know, I didn't ask permission to share that information. Normally when I had um, interviews and things coming up, I would talk to Curtis about, is there anything you don't want me to say? Is there anything that you need to protect that I'm aware of, you know, because I, I didn't want to blow the investigation. But when he told me that, I didn't ask permission to share it. And I still don't really know what his feelings are on, on me sharing it with the media. Um, but I just decided that I wanted to do that. And so he, his explanation to why the case was being closed was that he believed firmly that my uncle was the hijacker and whether the fingerprint evidence could prove that or not um, they were planning to close the case he said why investigate it further we know that he did it and now a year later where where does the investigation stand as as far as you know i don't know <laughs> i don't know um curtis never informed me about the fingerprint. He, he hasn't shared with me the findings. I don't know if if, if there were any conclusive findings. I, I found out that um, the FBI had two items of my uncle's. I'm not sure what they were. I believe one of them was a toothbrush. I said that from the start. I don't know what two items they have. But Actually, there were two suitcases belonged to my uncle that were in the possession of the man who supplied those to the FBI. And he, at the time, you know, he wasn't sure if he should trust the FBI or not trust the FBI. He didn't, you know, want to be under severe scrutiny. But he had two suitcases full of items. And so when I was in Curtis's office, Curtis made the remark, he said, we have 
two full prints and a partial. I think that's, I think those were the numbers he gave me. He said that what we hope to match to the, to the prints and evidence. And I was sort of puzzled by that statement because I'd read that there were many, many fingerprints that were collected on the plane. And I thought, two and a, and a partial. What, how, how's that? I, I didn't realize what I, what I've come to believe now is that he was referring to the fingerprints that were collected from the items that were provided that it belonged to my uncle. I think he was saying that they only had two fingerprints and a partial from those items. Has the Cooper investigation actually been closed by the FBI? I, I don't know where the investigation stands. As far as I know, it's still open. Um, there's, of course, been no formal announcement that the case is being closed. I did have another party who's involved in this investigation who's been questioned by the FBI expressed uh, that she had spoken to Curtis Ng as well and that I was correct the case was being closed. So, you know, of course, she's not somebody who's been involved in the media circus. <laughs> And not somebody whose, who, you know, participation in the investigation has been made public at all. Give, give our listeners maybe just a, a, a brief kind of a character of, of L.D. Cooper. Who, who was L.D. Cooper? What, what was he like? Well, L.D. was, it's funny, as I said, you know, you probably get more from talking to other people who knew him. Bert Hockett, who was one of the neighbors and friends of, of my dad and his brothers, made a remark in the Bend Bulletin interview that was conducted by Patrick Cliff that you can find online. And Bert made, he, he was, I guess he was being cynical of, of my story. He said, you know, L.D. Cooper didn't have enough on the ball to organize a hijacking. And I think that that was the perspective of, of a lot of sister locals after L.D. had gone to fight in the Korean War. When he came back, he was, he was pretty scarred emotionally, and he spent a lot of time just tucked away in my grandmother's house. My brother had something happen that triggered his memory of, of my uncle because he, he had so little memory of him that he said, you know, he really was sort of a playboy. And I think that that was our perspective because he was a rather handsome character. He was more striking physically than his brothers. He was, he was taller, he had darker skin, his eyes were this dark, 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 almost black, like my grandmother's were, where all the other boys had blue eyes. And so he stood out in the family as, as being somewhat, somewhat different, but very likable. You know, seeing him was a real treat for us. And, you know, I was, I was very fond of him, and he just seemed like a pleasant, pleasant guy. And, and the people who knew him at the end of his life said that he was just quiet and he sort of kept to himself, but was always very nice and thoughtful. One of my cousins, who was the stepdaughter of my uncle Dewey, talked about what a nice man he was. And, and you know, the, the recollection of, of the flight crew, you know, insisting that he was, he was extremely polite, you know, that he was, he wasn't this hardened criminal that the press had portrayed him to be. He was this polite, very sweet man. Curtis Ng told me that, you know, he, he described him as being crazy and, and advised me that 
when and if I do have access to the FBI files that I have not seen that are involving my part of the investigation, he said, you know, we'll probably withhold some of these things from you because they're very personal, you know, personal things about him. And he alluded that his mental condition was was definitely unstable and that, you know, those would be things in the file that I won't be allowed access to. But... You know, he was not in his right mind at all. I'm just saying it's conscience waiting across the line. I would like to, everybody to consider something that, what if, what if so many of the people who have these strong convictions about relatives being involved, what if none of them are wrong? You know, it could be that there were more people involved than just my two uncles. My mother remembers my father, you know, back in 1970, 70, 70 or 69, I have to look at my notes, but she remembers my father driving her to this place where my two uncles were supposedly hunting for Bigfoot. They weren't really camping. I don't know what they were doing. They weren't, they didn't seem to be hunting for Bigfoot. They seem to be up to something, though, and there was a, a group of people. And so I'm not convinced that some of these other people who have been presented and defended as suspects, I'm not convinced they weren't involved. I, I would, wouldn't be so arrogant just to say, you know, it was just my two uncles and there was nobody else, you know. I, I think that there was a, probably a village behind the scenes of people who who might have had something to do with it. You know, there's certainly history of my two uncles of the two, two or three years preceding the hijacking where they came across the path of a lot of people who, who you know, very well may have been involved. If the image of a village of D.B. Coopers out hunting Bigfoots pushes this concept into the realm of the tall tale, let's bring ourselves back to the facts. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun, I say. It's all right. It's all right. We had a chance to speak with Fred Pointer and Gwen Perkins of the Washington State Historical Museum about an exciting exhibit entitled Cooper, opening in 2013 in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, well, Cooper opens on August 17th uh, next year, 2013. Um, we'll run it through at least January of 2014, although popular demand may change that a little bit. Um, what we're doing is we're investigating the mysteries surrounding Cooper. Um, we're going to look at, however, at the Norjack hijacking in a different light, learning the long history of the investigation itself, how it ties into Pacific Northwest history, and then also its impact on modern national security and aviation. Uh, and I think that's, that's one of the things that will really uh, help enhance this exhibit. It's, it's, it looks at Cooper the figure as a hijacker, as uh, as a popular folk hero in some people's minds, but it also examines how how airline security changed from the '60s to today, and how the Cooper hijacking was was one of those influence events that influenced uh, 
with that evolution in security. And we're actually looking to do something a little different in that this full exhibition will be very experiential as well as what you're used to seeing in a traditional museum exhibition. Um, visitors will actually walk into a recreated cabin of the 727 um, in order to kind of get a sense of what it would have been like to be on the flight, as well as passing from that area to look at pieces of evidence um, and theories about who Cooper was, what happened that night, and really kind of come to their own conclusions. We're, uh, we're fortunate that we were able to obtain a, a number of, of good artifacts, including uh, period 727 aircraft, or parts of it anyway, uh, including the air stair, which Cooper made his jump from um, on uh, November 24, 1971. So is it going to be a pretty accurate historical recreation? I mean, we can sit down and have a couple cigarettes and drink some bourbon while we're inside the uh, recreated <laughs> 727? Well, unfortunately, you can't uh, smoke in a museum, but you can definitely sit down next to a figure who will be uh, replicating Cooper. <laughs> Excellent. You know, and I was down at the uh, the Oregon Aquarium down in Newport, and they had a, um, my son went into this simulated hurricane, and I think it blew winds of 100 miles an hour. Are we going to be able to jump off the aft stair and get a little simulated wind there, too? Well, uh, again, as, as Wynn pointed out, we're, the artifacts, uh, in, in as far as the seating in the theater, yeah, you'll be able to sit down in the aircraft seats, but like the stairwell, you won't be able to jump off it like Cooper did. Gotcha. Uh, but, uh, I can bring some box fans up if, if that will help at all. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's, this is really going to be a great exhibit. We've got over 150 uh, historical photographs. Um, uh, interviews with, with passengers who were on the flight, as well as FBI agents who worked on the case. Um, the, there was a discovery in 1980 of part of the ransom money. We're going to be having part of that on display. Uh, so there's, there's lots to see. Did the money come from that you're going to have on display? Was that from Brian Ingram, or was it from other sources? Yes, that's correct. We're, we're working with Brian as, as one of the lenders for the exhibition. That's fantastic. He's, he's such a helpful guy and is really, really working hard to, to keep this story alive. You know, he, he really offers a unique perspective as well on the history of the case, and we're, we're fortunate to be able to, uh, to have his, his help. Now, was the FBI helpful at all in supplying any actual evidence from the exhibit, maybe a black clip on tie or anything like that? Well, one of the difficulties that you run into when you're curating, curating an exhibition of this nature is that I think some people forget that this is actually an active case under investigation. Um, and so while they've been able to help us in terms of providing materials that are already accessible to the public's eye, um, unfortunately, we will not have evidence on display. Gotcha. Uh, actual evidence. Um, we have gone and located items that are very similar to in photographs of those items. Um, but in terms of actual evidence on display, unfortunately, because the case is still under investigation, we won't have that here. And we've also been able to use the FBI case files to recreate objects to give um, people a sense of what Cooper was actually doing. For instance, you know, the money bag that he jumped out with. We may not have the actual bag, but we have a good idea of the size, shape, and weight of the bag. So the visual will actually be able to pick it up and think, oh, would I have jumped out of the airplane with this? <laughs> what would it? You know, how does that affect your theory on whether or not he survived the job, for instance? 
And what challenges have you experienced in assembling this exhibit? Definitely a real challenge for us is, um, and something that we don't deal with often in a museum, is how exactly do you recreate a 727 cabin within an exhibit space um, and make that believable? Um, so that is one aspect that we're working with is we have a number of very large <laughs> parts. It is an airplane after all. Um, how do we put those things together? How do we design them? How do we display it? How do we make them safe? Can we make them safe? Given the time that has passed, the fact that the case is still active, finding a context or a theme for the exhibit has been a challenge on its own. And that's actually been a challenge in itself uh, because you know, we wanted, we're trying to keep the focus on aviation security history as far as it relates to Cooper rather than turn this into an exhibit of a more broad nature and, and um, hijacking and, and terrorism in general. That's not what the exhibit's about. It's, it's, it's really about Cooper and trying to give some context to, to what happened with his event. And, and that kind of leads into to a good question for me. Is, is D.B. Cooper still relevant? I mean, we're talking 41 years, almost to the day after the hijacking. Is this still a relevant case? I think absolutely. Um, you can look at high, you can look at Cooper. Cooper was kind of a turning point for hijacking in the 70s, um, one of several turning points that we've seen over the years. You know, in the 60s, a lot of the hijackings that occurred were involved with the Cold War going to Cuba. Uh, Cooper is the, really the second extortionist um, hijacker, but at that point, the nature of hijacking began to change, um, and you found more extortion-driven hijacking. And in response, the government, you know, that's where we really see things like magnometers, um, the installation of parts in the airplane, like the Cooper vane, that prevent the air after from being lowered in flight. The checking of all checked baggages as a security uh, measure at airports. Um, unbelievably, that that was not up until the early 1970s. That was not a standard practice done by the FAA. And so, you know, and these are issues that we continue to deal with today, um, perhaps in a slightly different context because technology has changed. But every time, you know, there is a new wave of technology, um, these questions keep on arising, and they really do start to originate back in this story, which I don't think a lot of people realize. And also, I think the FBI would be uh, the first to agree that that's the only unsolved uh, hijacking case that, that it is relevant in terms of uh, law enforcement. One last time, can you give our listeners again the when when is the exhibit opening? Where can they find you in Tacoma? Uh, because I'm really really excited about this exhibit, and I want some folks uh, to take the journey up I five and come and take a look at it. Well, uh, Cooper the exhibition opens August seventeenth, two thousand thirteen. Um, we are at the Washington State History Museum in Tacoma, Washington, on nineteen eleven Pacific. Um, however, to keep track of us, I personally recommend that you go to our website, WashingtonHistory.org, um, and either sign up for our email list or you know keep track of us on Facebook. We do a lot of we keep a lot of information current. We're going to be start we're going to start showing pieces of the exhibit as things get closer and little bits of information as well. We're also going to have a dedicated uh, Cooper Gallery uh, on our website with uh, audio interviews, uh, videos, uh, artifacts. And, and things of that of that nature um, close to the exhibit launch date. So uh, that, that would be a good resource.
So another year passes with D.B. Cooper still a fugitive from justice. If you're out there, D.B., tucked away in a cozy cave somewhere, sharing a bourbon and seven with Bigfoot and Amelia Earhart, putting the finishing touches on your Shanghai tunnel, we here at ORHistory.com would like to say that as far as threatening to blow up that plane full of people for money, you're a total prick. But the crazy theories and people that swirl around you and your tail make for some kick-ass Oregon history. I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. <laughs> Thank you for listening, Ass Kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, and receive extra insights into podcast topics. You can also support the podcast go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And coming up on November 17, 2012, please join resident historian Doug Kate Crispin and Oregon's own Marla Cooper at the Hollywood Theater at 7.30 p.m. for D.B. Cooper Movie Night. We'll enjoy a viewing of the 1981 film The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, starring Robert Duvall and Treat Williams, a true crime cinematic gem. In addition, we'll feature a few shorter films that deal with the cult icon D.B. Cooper. Marla Cooper will also share a few words about her involvement in this 41-year-old case, a truly unique opportunity to spend an evening with Cooper royalty. So come on down to the Hollywood Theater on Saturday, November 17th at 7.30 p.m. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kate Crispin. He's liable to make you jump from the aft stair, just so you get the authentic 
D.B. Cooper experience. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.